Thank you so much for joining me today for Exactly with me, Florence Given. In this podcast, I'm exploring five big subjects from multiple angles, sex, body image, social media, and relationships. And today is the third part of my mini series all about feminism. I've learned so much already from my incredible guests, Sean Faye and Jamila Jamil, and I'm so looking forward to welcoming today's guest, comedian, feminist, podcasting, royalty, and all-round icon, Deborah Francis White. At the end of the episode, we'll be answering the questions that you've sent in via my Instagram stories. And there's so many brilliant ones to choose from. Coming up in the fourth episode on feminism, remember I want to hear from you. My guests and I will be answering your calls, texts, and your voice notes. So any questions or dilemmas you have to do with feminism, just drop me a line on my podcast WhatsApp number. The number is plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Today's guest is Deborah Francis White. Her podcast, The Guilty Feminist, was actually the first podcast I ever listened to. I remember coming into my feminist awakening when I was around... Well, I learned what feminism was when I was around 14 to 15, but it wasn't until I turned 18 that I became enraged with the way that men were just grabbing my body in nightclubs and no one around me seemed to really care about it. And I just typed in, I think I just typed in the word feminist on YouTube or Spotify and up came The Guilty Feminist and it became this little bubble for me. It became a place of escapism where on my, I think I was in college at the time, on my summer holidays from college, I would just sit in the sun and listen to these groups of women laugh, confess stuff that they do that they don't believe is feminist. Deborah's classic line that she enters the podcast every episode with is, I'm a feminist, but, and then she goes on to read these hilarious lines. It made me feel like I'd found my people. And I just think she has absolutely harnessed the power of podcasting. And she definitely gave me the ability to speak up and use my voice when I was at that age. There's just so much I want to talk to her about. Modern feminism, the roots of feminism, the roots of the patriarchy, why women feel so guilty about the shit that we do, how we can differentiate between feminist and non-feminist acts and decisions, and why guilt permeates the female experience. I think she's fucking great and I can't wait to chat with her today. Deborah, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So I'm just going to go through some of my quick fire questions first. So you just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, question one. Mm -hmm. What's one thing that sets your soul on fire? Oh, um, other women doing extraordinary things. Oh, fantastic. Okay, next question. If you could wear one outfit for the rest of your life, a look that would define you forever, what would that outfit be? The Vivian Westwood cocotte dress. 
Yes. <laughs> I didn't have to think about that. <laughs> no, you didn't. But Vivian Westwood is a, is another woman doing an extraordinary thing. The yes, cut of amazing. it, I've got I've got one. And the cut of it, it hoists your breasts. You don't need a bra with it. It's got its own yeah. corset. It's, <laughs> like, it's, it's like scaffolding. And oh, it's just the cut, the drape. And it's so comfortable. You think it's not going to be comfortable, but it is, it's like wearing a second skin. So Incredible. F- 100% that. Mine would be a Vivian Westwood suit, like one of the tartan ones with mm. the shoulder pads. I have got one of those as well. Okay, next question. What's something that people frequently misunderstand or get wrong about you? I think they think because I've got a double-barreled name sometimes that they think I'm posher than I am. <laughs> I'm from Australia and I went to a state school, so no. <laughs> I thought you were from Australia. I thought so. That's right. I, I don't have yeah. much of an accent, but it comes and goes, Floss. It yeah. comes and goes. You'll hear it every now and again. Um, <laughs> comes and goes. Comes and goes. Uh, that was awful. Yeah. Um, no, 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 it's not bad. <laughs> if you want to sound Australian... It's just right up the back of the mouth and then just keep your lips tight. So just don't open your mouth because the flies might okay. get in. But then you keep everything right at the back of the mouth and then just it keep the front of It comes and goes. That's, that's not bad. No. Although I don't think my Australian accent's that's great anymore. People, <laughs> Australian friends, they go, you sound like a pom doing an Aussie accent, Deb. Um, <laughs> and I probably do. I apologise to all the Australian listeners. Next question. Mm-hmm. I Finish the sentence. I'm still a work in progress when it comes to... Oh, um... Cooking um, and understanding myself. <laughs> okay. Okay. Very different. Very, very Yes, very different. Okay, next question. Last one. When was the last time you majorly cringed at yourself? Oh, God, probably 20 minutes ago. I'm always <laughs> cringing at myself. But I cringe at things I did t- 20 years ago, like, you know, two, yes. two years ago, five years ago, two months ago. Mm. Do you have any examples? I can't stand listening to myself on my podcast and hearing myself interrupt <laughs> people. I have ADHD. Um, and I'm working on what that means, some great things in terms of your ability for divergent thinking, but some things like you can't wait to say what you need to say. So it's easy to interrupt and it's also easy to keep talking because your your thought is coming in a wave. So okay. I'm working on that, but I hate hearing myself interrupt other people. Yes, yes. Or, I think, I, I, shut up, shut up. Sometimes it just has to come out. It's an absolute honour to talk to you today because The Guilty Feminist was something that helped me a lot. And one of the main things I love about The Guilty Feminist is that you name the contradictions and the guilt that we feel with having the label of feminist and then also doing other things that contradict what we would assume being a feminist means. And I've always found the show so hilarious and so funny. And I want to know what was most surprising to you about people's reactions to the podcast. Do you feel like it gave women that sense of freedom. Yeah, I was really surprised I didn't get kicked out of the feminist club, Floss. I thought, <laughs> when I started saying, I'm a feminist, one of my earliest ones was, I'm a feminist, but one time I was getting on a light aircraft from Cape Cod to Boston and the pilot asked me my weight in front of everyone <laughs> and I lied by 20 pounds, endangering my life, that of the pilot, the other passengers and a border collie that was along for the ride. And this is true, halfway across, it got, you know, when light aircrafts get, there's like half a dozen people in there and get really yeah. wobbly. Yeah. And I whispered to my best gay friend, David, I was like, David, I've lied about my weight. I'm going to crash. And he went, oh, don't worry, darling. They they always put on 10 pounds for women and gay men. <laughs> and I was like, we better hope someone else hasn't lied because I've lied by 20 pounds. It was like, oh, they, oh my God. They, they just, ch- they chuck on 10 pounds for women and gay men. Um. <laughs> Anyway, I I thought when I said things like that, because remember, this was the era of 
Bridget Christie's a big for her and Catamaran's How to Be a Woman and Chimamanda's We Should All Be Feminists, Malala speaking out, you know, post the worst thing that could have happened happening to her. Um, I was like, everyone's so strident. Everyone knows what they think and everyone's so sure of it. And I was thinking, I'm a feminist, but I don't think I'm doing this right. And Bridget said to me, you'll never find your audience until you say what you're too scared to say. And I was like, well, that's all right for you, Bridget, because what you're too scared to say sounds very impressive. And what I'm too scared to say sounds like confession after confession where I'm not living my values. But actually, it was such a relief to so many women. So many women were like, oh, my God, thank God. Thank God you've said it because I was thinking that I was inadequate. And so from a place of inadequacy, can we look at it and go, these things don't really matter. And if they do matter, let's put them on the table and build muscle. Let's let's get yes. let's get better. And if yes. it, either it doesn't matter and it's risible and it's funny and it's just we just women are just trained to feel guilty, or it does matter, in which case we're not gonna get better unless we first of all admit it and look at it. There's a Chinese proverb that says the beginning of wisdom is calling something by its proper name. And if you can't say it, you'll never fix it. So yeah. let's let's begin. It's so true. I love that you start every episode with the I'm a feminist, but and then you go on with these confessions and you get all your guests to do it as well. One part of the podcast that I do at the end is I ask all of my uh, listeners and followers to send in questions that they have for my guest and I. And most of the questions that people send in are, is it okay if I do this? Um, Is it okay that I let my boyfriend stand up for me because I know he'll be heard more by... Mm the person I'm trying to get to respect me, all of this kind of stuff. Um, why do you feel like so many people feel like they're failing at feminism? We of- often have this split brain that you have like the feminist side of yourself and then you have who you actually are and that you're trying to live your life almost by th- these morals. And often they they kind of, there's friction between them. And it's, it's a very odd way to live because it's no longer like patriarchal shame. It's the feminist shame. Mm. I think it comes from the same place, though. It comes from a place of control, wanting control. And that's that's patriarchal. I think, honestly, women are just trained to feel guilty about everything. We're trained to feel guilty. We're trained to feel shame. And that keeps us in our place. And so it is no accident that feminism at times becomes one more thing to feel guilty about and ashamed of. So we need to rewrite the script because just just because we're coming to something that is about equality and justice for women and people of minority genders does not mean that we won't play out the script we've already played out. If, if, If a woman is a senior partner in a law firm, she is trained to feel guilty that she should be at home with her children. If she's at home with her children, she's trained to feel guilty. She should be doing better in her career and so on and so on and so on. But if you're, what if you are balancing those things amazingly, uh, then, oh, well, I'm not being a good enough daughter. I'm not being a good enough friend. I I never get time to go to the PTA committee at school or whatever. We're trained to feel guilty about things in a way that men are trained just by the history of the world and societal structures. If a man turns up for his child's school concert, if he turns up at his kid's concert, piano recital, it's like, isn't he wonderful? And he even <laughs> made it to this. Whereas, yes. <laughs> whereas uh, that's the that's the baseline expectation because a woman's got to be a carer. So for us, we don't get bonus points. So you, I, it's not uncommon to see a man holding his own baby and for, and for people to say, oh, isn't he such a great father? Look, he's holding, oh my God, now he's changing the nappy. Yeah. It's like the thing where um women ask their husbands to babysit for the children. Ugh. And even though even though it's their child, I feel like that's very that's similar to what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, he's looking after the child. You're so lucky. But there's all sorts of ways in which there's a sort of silent expectation on women that we none of us not acknowledge. And I would find it odd 
if you know sometimes people send you a little thank you note or a thank you email mm. if you've had them over or you've done something for them if it was a married couple and the man sent me a thank you for something I'd done and the woman didn't that would be odd and it's not yeah. it just would be and I I would like it but yeah. I would notice it and that's because yeah. it just doesn't happen. My God, that's that's so niche. That's so niche, but also so true. That's something I've never thought about. The the only the closest thing I've thought to that's in the sim- similar kind of vein is w- women remembering all the birthdays. And it's not, you always kind of rob men also. You enable it because you rob them of their own ability to do that kind of stuff themselves. I do it but to it, my they do overperform it as they do overperform that kind of stuff. It's expectation though, isn't it? You know, I think feminism does need to acknowledge that men still do most of the dangerous work. It's true. So I don't want to be a feminist who ignores the, the ways in which women are privileged and men are men are given an assumed responsibility either. Mm. I always find it really hard to explain though to people because a lot of men, when talking about feminism, will bring something like that up to kind of shut you down on on any kind of conversation. What would you do in that situation? Because I, f- I feel like what you just said, although it is, it is completely relevant, I often struggle to argue th- like the actual case when someone brings out that kind of card. Oh, I don't argue it. I I, I fully acknowledge it. And and I use it as a yes and bridge. So I okay, get I get on their side bridge. of the table and I go, um, and I find if I will acknowledge that the history of the world in terms of warfare has greatly put men into a situation where they have they've had shortened lives and terrifying post-traumatic stress disorder. And I and I I then put that out on the table and say, yes, this is really terrible. Can you see that in terms of representation of the people who have started the wars, sent people to sent men to war, uh, not being kind then to the people who have survived the war. Can you see who those people are? Are those people men or women? And they usually <laughs> then have to go, yeah, they are men. And yes. so then well, would it be, you know, useful to have more women in power? And and would that be useful only if they were not the kind of women who can get into power because they're the ones men approve of, Pretty Patel, um, mm. Margaret Thatcher. Uh, it, it, do you see what I mean? Like you could then you could then extend yes. that. Yes, that, that, that's such a good point. Um, so every time I talk about the rates of sexual violence with women, someone always brings up about men. What, what about male victims? And I always just say, who, who, who's assaulting the men? Mm. It's It's 90% men it's more and, and it's it more, always it's goes 96 percent 96 percent yeah yeah it's just the zooming out thing it's like i agree isn't that fucking awful so deborah i want to talk about what we can define as a feminist action and what is or isn't a feminist action because we hear a lot of these ideas about women if a woman makes a choice and she says she's doing it for herself then it must be a feminist action um, it could be, I'm sleeping with this person because that's what I want to do. I'm getting Botox because this is what I want to do. I'm losing weight because this is what I want to do for me. How can we extrapolate like those two from each other? Can we? Is there even any point? So you're talking about like choice feminism. Yes. Feminism of, uh, if it's a woman's choice, then it must be feminist because that's the whole point of feminism that women can choose. There's not no value in choice feminism, but... If every choice every woman has ever made is feminism, it's not a movement. <laughs> it's just it's just an observation that women make choices. Mm. How is that a movement? How does that going to change the world? Women were already going to make choices. Mm. That makes no difference. So every choice every woman ever makes can't be feminism. 
That, that makes no sense. That's like saying every choice every man makes is in service of the patriarchy. It's not mm. true. What I would say is this. If it's something like, I wax my legs because I love waxing my legs. Uh, and no one can tell me I can't wax my legs. How is it patriarchal to wax your legs? This is my suggestion. Do men get hot wax poured on their body, on their tender bikini line area and have a professional, pay a professional to rip it off? No, of course not. Now, I quite like getting waxed, but the way that I found out that that's what I definitely wanted to do, acknowledging that, of course, I have been socially conditioned to want to do it and it wouldn't have been my idea if no one else ever got waxed and I was raised Mm. in a world where hair on a woman was just unobserved or admired, of course I wouldn't do it and I wouldn't want to do it. Uh, But what I did is I stopped waxing everything for a few months to see if I could get used to hair Mm. and if I would like it more. And after a while, I was like, I kind of miss the smoothness of it. Uh, I I have been raised in a femme gender presenting society and fashion is fashion and it makes me feel more confident about myself. So I went back to waxing. But there have been other things that I've given up. Like I've given up high heels at times and I've been like, oh, I think flats are really sexy. Flats with a with a dress or a, you know, flats are really sexy and I'm very tall. And I think for years I was teetering around as a default in heels thinking that was more femme. And actually it made me feel uncomfortable. I wasn't walking well in them because I was wearing them all day and all night at the Edinburgh Festival. And I started to sort of lean forward and get tightness in my back. Yeah. And I went, this isn't pleasant for me. And it doesn't make me look somehow more sexually attractive yeah. and more fabulous. <laughs> Especially if you're not working. bending over like that. <laughs> it's not working. And so I just stopped and I started mm. wearing flats. And I that was an example of something that I went, oh no, I feel better like this. So if you are, if it's in something superficial and frankly, it's not going to make or break feminism if you put you individually wear heels or or have a bikini wax. But that's what I would say with choice. You don't know if it's your choice if you've never done anything else. So have a go. You've got to do it for four months though, I think, around four months to kind so of figure true. out. And then you go, oh, then you try a pair of heels on again. And in that time, I'm not saying you can never wear heels, but just default for four months to no heels and have a go at wearing no heels at a party where you'd normally wear heels and have a go at, you know, and then at the end of that four months, go back into heels for you know, whatever it is that you were wearing them for. And you might go, oh my God, these are super uncomfortable and I'm not enjoying it. And I don't think this is working at all. Or you might go, oh, thank God. I just love this feeling of being elevated. I feel sexy. In which case they're for you. But please do acknowledge that if your society didn't put you on stilts and that was not a thing, you wouldn't have invented it yourself. No, It's, It's not something you want to do. It's something society has conditioned you to want to do. But to find out if it's your choice, stop it. You know, that's what I would say. And then have then pick it up again and see see where you're at. That's so true. What you said about um you don't know it's your choice if you've never done anything else. Um, my friend Pippa Evans um stopped wearing makeup because she's very pale and her mother always said if you don't wear mascara, you and lipstick, you look like a biscuit because they're very pale, you know, pale eyelashes and oh pale my God. in her family. And she's a brilliant performer, you should look her up if you don't know her. And um, she decided that she said, she did a blog about it. It was called 100 Days is a Biscuit. And she <laughs> just decided, sake. she said, unless she absolutely had to for show business, you know, for a role, mm. she was even on stage, she wasn't going to, for her comedy nights and things, she wasn't going to wear 
makeup. And now she said at the end of that, now I wear makeup to play for fun. If I feel like it, if I'm, if I want that lift, but as a default, she doesn't, she's okay. like, it's not my, it's not my thing. I have to have it on before I leave the house. So you need she's to go cold turkey with these yeah. rituals sometimes. She, she's comfortable with her own face now. And she's like, I just wanted to be comfortable with my own face. And that really only happened for me in the pandemic because I couldn't be asked. Like now I've got no makeup on at all. And I'm on this Zoom. And I, I think previously to the pandemic and to the Zoom culture. Yes. I would not have come into a studio mm. without a little bit of liquid eyeliner and a little bit of concealer, something on my face. And now yeah. I'm like, ah, this is my face. If people don't like my face, I mean, I, I, it's just it's hard for me to get worked up about whether or not people love my face or not. I know I know, I can make my face look, look playful or more than or mm-hmm. stand out if I want, but I don't want to have to do that every single day. No, of course. It's it's an exhausting performance and one to keep up. And I feel like you start to value the content of what you have to say a lot more when you show up in that self. Yes. Like, w- without the makeup and without the kind of performance, because you know that you're there to do a job rather than look pretty while doing the job. Exactly. And as far as other choices in feminism, um, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson's my favourite example of this. She wanted to become a doctor in the 1800s. There were no doctors who were women. So she had to f- jump through all these hoops and loopholes and find uh, find a medical school that had forgotten to say no women allowed because they thought it was, a re- it was just like saying no zebras allowed. Obviously, okay. that was, <laughs> was ridiculous. So they had to let her in. She then still wasn't allowed to practice medicine. She didn't have a full degree. So she went to Paris. She learned French well enough to go to the Sorbonne because they were teaching women to be doctors. Um, imagine what, learning French enough, well enough to do a medical degree. I mean, mm-hmm. that's dedication. Yeah. So then she comes back. No one will hire her. She opens her own clinic. No one will go to it. Not even women, because it's so weird to have a woman doctor. They're like, mm, you might, you'll probably faint at some. You fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> then she benefits. Has a stroke of luck. There's an outbreak of cholera. Lucky days. Uh, that means there are not enough doctors to go around, so people will even see a woman, <laughs> and they go, oh, she's rather good. This woman, and her clinic takes off. Now, there's two choices that Elizabeth Garrett Anderson can make at this point. One. I'm the fabulous special one. I'm the only woman doctor. Mm. No other women should be doctors because then I'm not so special. (laughs) Not a feminist choice. Now, that's not to say her representation does nothing for little girls who go to a female doctor, Mm. but it's not a feminist choice. Yes. The other one is uh, she, the choice that she in fact did make was she opened a, and this isn't her responsibility, but this is a choice she made. She set up a school for women to learn to be doctors. And Florence Nightingale did not want women to be doctors. She fell out with the first female American doctor over that, that they were best friends. She was like, women don't need to be doctors. They can be nurses. Uh, there's no need for women to be doctors. Wow. So what she was doing was saying, and it wasn't her obligation. She was had a full-time job being a doctor in mm. a man's world, being the only female doctor in a man's world. A feminist choice is to encourage other women to be doctors and not be like elbowing women out and shutting the door in their face. Yes. The unfeminist thing is to say I'm special and keep women out. Mm. The mid road is to go, I, I'd talk to any woman who wanted to do it and I'd encourage women and I'd say more women should be feminine, should, should be doctors. The super feminist thing to do is set up a school and make sure that happened. Yeah. Now, today, over 50% of the medics in this country are female. That's down to Elizabeth Garrison Anderson. There are choices that women can make that are not feminist. Um, 
Re-men, men do a lot of jobs for the boys, honestly. Yes, men, boys men do. Club. Yeah. But scratching each other's back. Because if I, if I, they bank a favour and they expect to get that favour back. And there's lots of studies that show when women do a favour, they don't cash in their chips. They, they studies on it. They just go, oh, no, that's fine. You don't owe me anything. And men do jobs for the boys. Women mm. have, have been trained we're in a scarcity culture. And what that means is there's only one spot at the top for a woman. We only have one woman on the board. So if I help you, Floss... Mm. What if you get it and I don't? Yes. The scarcity culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Boys boys club culture, because men have been running things for so long and there have been so many opportunities for men. Boys club culture is you scratch my back, I scratch yours. I'll get you a nice job, job for the boys. And then later on, when you're in a position, you'll get me a job. Okay. Or you'll get give me a kickback or now you're on the board and I got you on the board. I've got influence because I don't want to be on the board. I've got this job. So now I've got a friend on the board, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So men don't always elbow each other out of the way women need to get on that train yeah and we i think instead of an old boys club we need a new girls club yeah so so men are would you say more like abundance and women are scarce in terms of their mindset yeah what's what we've been trained to see you know like generations of only men allowed in the house of commons yeah so of course deals were done but you look at how few female mps there still are how many when will we have an all-female cabinet? Never. Never. <laughs> never. We'll never have that. So, of course, there's a scarcity culture. So, if I help you become Minister for Education, but what I'm looking to do is become Chancellor of the Exchequer, mm. you know, am I, and there's only going to be so many women on the cabinet, am I now, Floss, helping you over my head and are you going to steal my opportunity down the line? Men don't mm. think that way because they've got an abundance culture. And that's not because men are better than women. That's because we're talking about... The difference between people, you know, who are allowed into five people allowed into a room scrabbling over one apple and and half a biscuit, and people being led into a room where there's a great big feast on the table and going, mm. oh, you first. Oh, would you like would you like the smoked salmon? Because I've got <laughs> two plates of it, and I'm not going to get through it all myself. Yeah. Would you say Would you say then that? Uh, the solution to that obviously that this is super long term but would you say that we need to just trust that other women are going to open the doors for us or do we I I don't really know I think we need to model it I think we need to model it I think we need to demonstrate to women who have a scarcity mindset that we will be generous to them yes and we will ostentatiously not I don't mean like virtue signaling but we will overtly Mm. uh, recommend them we will create female spaces or female driven spaces uh, we will create spaces of generosity and surplus. I've had and this. I've had an example of this. Um, I, I didn't, I feel so privileged in having this person in my life and as kind of like a role model for this abundance mindset where you just bring every every person in. Monroe Bergdorf um, is a trans activist, uh, soon to be author. She yes. has her own podcast. She's incredible. She's on to, uh, she was the first woman to be signed to my management company. And I went to mm. one of her talks as a fan to watch Monroe talk. And I sat at the front and she came and sat next to me and she was like, I really like your illustrations. She was like, yeah, they're really cool. Um And then within a week, I had an email from her management company saying, we've seen your stuff through Monroe and we would absolutely love to hang out with you and discuss potentially working with you. 
And every time I was with Monroe in meetings, in panel discussions or whatever, she's the person across the table going, let me put you in touch with someone. Let me do this. Because she's just, she's just fucking phenomenal. And watching her do that, because I didn't have anyone in the industry to really look up to. So to have her show me and model that kind of behavior, it's the only way I've really known how to be. Um, And I think it also takes a lot of courage to keep doing it when you're still, when you are burned. I think it takes a lot of courage because not everyone's on the same page as you. Yes, I agree. Um, and when you find those people who will advocate for you and who speak up for you and and create collegiate relationships and collaborative relationships, I mean, it's just gold. It's just wonderful. But also makes everyone's life better. Yep. I just, I'm just not interested in that life of a solo operator who, great, so you've got a lot of trophies on the shelf and you've got a lot of money in the bank, but it's not fun. No. Because you're not sharing it with anyone. It's not no. joyful. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. You say in your book that you grew up in a cult and you liken diet culture to being in a cult. And I completely agree with this. I've read The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf and she talks about Slimming World and how uh, calories are called sins and have you, you have to go in as a ritual to weigh yourself. And if you don't weigh the correct weight, uh, you're, you're punished. And there's all these points and all these weird kind of systems. And I'm obsessed with this topic because um, obviously it involves a lot of guilt. Could you talk about why you think diet culture is like a cult? It's a high control group. I just noticed a few years ago and it's it's shifted with the body positivity and the fatic liberation movements. But a few years ago, honestly, whenever I met women, the conversation would begin with, what are you not eating at the moment? Honestly, you say, oh, you look great. I love that dress. They'd go, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I've just, you know, I've lost half stone. I'm not, yeah, I'm not eating carbs at the moment. And it's really shifted everything. I'm on the paleo. Yep. Then someone else would say, I'm not eating sugar. I'm just, I've just cut a sugar and I've just, you know, it's totally changed me. And then someone else would say, well, I'm not eating Wednesdays and Fridays. And that would be, you know, the, the That was the me five, in secondary school at 14. Yeah. yeah. Was, what? You're not eating Wednesdays and Fridays? <laughs> and it's like, you are starving yourself. Of course you're losing weight, but it's awful and it's unsustainable. Anyway, I found that was happening. Or the other thing would be like, I've got a Peloton and I find this. I'm going to, 
Bob's body works and, you know, I've never felt better. I'm doing British military fitness. I mean, all of this stuff is just like, why are we sharing this? It's just so weird. It's not, mm. nobody goes, I just went to the doctor and got a full checkup and he said I'm low on vitamin D or, you know, <laughs> like it's, 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 but it was just this thing to share, to show. And I think it was to show you're making an effort, to show you're trying, yeah. to show I'm participating in this, this womanhood by denying myself or, or pushing myself in some way. Um, and it was a, like a, a community venture. It's like I'm not part of the gang unless I'm in some way denying myself or pushing myself beyond my limits. And I I do think it's extremely pernicious and it became something that I just decided I wasn't going to participate in anymore. And that is not to say uh, a friend of mine uh, has very high blood pressure and uh, she's had family members pass away because of very high blood pressure. And so for her, exercise to regulate her blood pressure is very important. Mm. And she's really, it really is taking care of herself. It's of for course, her, it's, it's not a, abs- yeah, no, it's not a blanket it's not, statement not, for anyone, is it? No, and it's not a cosmetic thing for her. But of course, the more she moves, you know, she gets smaller. And then sometimes you get backlash from the community which says, oh, you've if you've got a public profile and you lose weight, oh, you've let us down. And I'm like, I find that upsetting too. I'm like, mm. can women just do what they want with their own bodies. Yeah. And that is not a reflection on a community. So I know like Adele got a lot of flack for losing weight. Lena Dunham got a lot of flack. Lena Dunham had something, I think she had polycystic ovaries. You know, she would spoke about it publicly. She had to have hysterectomy, I think. And But I know that she got a lot of flack. Like she's let us down. Yes. And then she put on a lot of weight because then she got another condition. Like, has she now, is she now a better person? Like, I'm yes. like, l- women need to just be allowed to be the shape and the size they are. And that will fluctuate over your lifetime. Mm. And there may be a very good reason why somebody that you know nothing about, yeah. and it's nothing to do with anybody. And I do understand if you're somebody who identifies as being part of a fat community and you have celebrities that represent you and that shifts, I can understand that that feeling disappointing or that feeling like we've lost someone from our community. And I absolutely understand that. But I don't like going to that woman and saying... It's still control, isn't it? I don't want want women to owe any cosmetic standard, whether that be fat, thin, mid-size fashion. Our relationship with our body is our relationship with our body. And if I see somebody starving themselves and being miserable to take up less space, I, yes, absolutely want to talk about why we've been socially conditioned to do that and how destructive that can be. Mm. I also want every individual woman to end up in a place where they have their own relationship with their body and bodies do get smaller and larger and smaller and larger through our lives. Mm. And that's okay. So so you've you've likened this to a cult in your book. What how would what elements of diet culture would you say then of all the stuff you've just described are similar to your experience of growing up in a cult? Outside the and and it is a small bubble, body positivity, fat liberation. It's a small, small bubble in this world. It is. So if you're in most communities, it is still not acceptable to be plus size which in itself is a problematic turn of phrase, and not be trying to change that. Yes. Because it's sitting there. It's sitting there the whole time. That's a high control group. Could you explain, sorry, what a high control group is? It means that the group is controlled by the individuals within it. So the the people from on high who run the group make the rules, but then the group controls each other. So it's not like, so a classroom of children tends to be not a high control group because if the teacher leaves them and says, everyone be quiet 
uh, it will only be one or two children will be going, the teacher said to be quiet. Most of the children will be like, yay, they've gone. Okay, okay. But a religion, uh, a very high control, uh, highly controlling religion or a cult, w- means that the elders or the, the priests, whoever's running the group, can leave and the rest of the group spies on each other and controls each other and says, you can't say that, you can't do that, and wow. tells, tells on the other people. So it's a lot like the left sometimes as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, so they tell on you to other people. So they, so when the, the people who are in charge come back, they say, oh, Sister Deborah, which has happened to me when I was a Jehovah's Witness, Sister Deborah was wearing a skirt that was above the knee or Sister Deborah was, I saw her having a coffee with a worldly person. And I, so I would have to justify and prove, even if that was not true, and then I would have a guilty conscience. I wouldn't just be able to go, do you know what? Uh, that's that, Yeah, that's Heather. I used to go to school with her. She's so nice. Mm. And she just popped by my work and I was on a break and I said, sure, Heather, let's have a coffee together. That'd be really fun. And in fact- So just justifying. Oh, I wouldn't be able to say that. I would be disciplined. And if I didn't listen, I would be disfellowshipped. And that means everyone in my life would shun me. And literally I would be dead to them. They would cross the road to avoid me. And that could be just from my attitude of being like, I'm okay with, I like Heather. I think she's great. I would not be allowed to say that. And someone would tell on me. They absolutely would. And I yeah. told on people because I was so brainwashed by it. And so yeah. I would I would say to an elder, I'm just really worried about so-and-so because she just seems to be drifting away from Jehovah. And now I look back on that with absolute horror and shame that I would ever do that, but I was very brainwashed. And I that's see- why I think it's like a high control group, the diet yeah. culture. Okay, Deborah, I've got some questions for all my listeners here. Could you give me a hand answering them? Yes, I would absolutely love to. Amazing. Here we go. How to manage girl-to-girl toxicity and pressure regarding looks and still be a feminist about it? Always err on the side of giving someone the benefit of the doubt. Be generous to them. Don't start with the most hostile. You've done this. Mm. Start with, um, do you mean this? Uh, I sometimes feel that. Start by building a bridge uh, and realise that being aggressive to someone is one tool in your kit. Being cross with someone is only one tool in your kit and it should be the last tool that you use uh, most of the time. That's excellent advice. Okay, on to the next one. Is actually hating men helpful or harmful to the progression of feminism on the whole? Harmful. We need men and also men are also the victims of patriarchal forces. And so the more that we can acknowledge what men are feeling the more likely they are to be open to what we're feeling and we can work together. Men are our allies, men are human beings, men need compassion, men need love. It's really easy to go, but you've got all the privilege. It's not always true. I've got a lot more privilege. I've got a lot more privilege than most black men in this country. I've got a lot more privilege than most disabled men in this country. And there are some cisgendered white, non-disabled men who are straight, who are really, really, really struggling with mental health because they don't know how to deal with this system any better. So for me, kindness first. And again, being angry is one tool in your box. If it's the only tool in your box, it's not going to be effective. Yeah, I I agree with you now. I think at the the beginning of my feminist journey, which many, many people who listen to my podcast might be, I went the complete other way on the scale um, and I wouldn't even like listen to anything that my dad said just on the basis that he was a man. Um, I kind of dismissed anything that men would say because I was so angry and I had this big rage inside of me and then some really horrific things happened to me along the way and I started to empathize with men a bit more on that 
And then my, my feminism was just like swung right back into the middle where it should be now. They're human beings. They get defensive. Sometimes they behave badly because within certain contexts, they've had a power for a long time and they've started to think that they're entitled to it. Some men, some men, some men. However, the best way to build a bridge isn't to go, you're an asshole. No. Um, some days that's all you feel like doing. And some days someone is being an asshole and fair enough, but it, it can't... It, if it's your only tool in your box and you want to bring about change in the world, I'd question it. If you don't get on with another woman, how can you tell if it's because of your own internalised misogyny or if she's just not a nice person? Mm, good question. Might be both. Um, I would suggest doing your best to find out what makes her scared and what makes her happy and you'll find that you have things in common. Wow. So would you say that's humanising the woman instead of seeing her as some kind of threat in the room, competition, whatever? It's the answer to everything and everyone. Individualise, humanise. Yeah. No, but I love how simple you made that. Find out what makes them scared and what makes them happy. Mm. You'll find you've got stuff in common. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Deborah. I have one more question for you. Do you have any advice for any new feminists embarking on their journey? Yes. Uh, start local and start with one small thing that you can do. Is there something in your family that you can do? A woman who is struggling, who could use your help? Is there deep inequality mm. at the school your children go to or at the university you go to that you can say, I'd like to start uh, a society to give women a voice or I think on Tuesday afternoons we could do this. And it's one simple thing that you can see from through from beginning to end that's local. When you feel the impact of that, that will grow. And also it will give you confidence and it will change the kind of person you are and what you think you can accomplish in life. That's great. Start local. That's great. S small, doable, local. One thing you can see through from start to finish. Okay, amazing. So, Deborah, where can we find you on social media? Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm at DFDubs, D-U-B-Z, or at The Guilty Feminist. And if you're in the UK, you can get tickets now for the live tour. If you'd like to see where we're coming, uh, you go to guiltyfeminist.com. We're touring through March up until June. And then we have our London show on the 1st of October. And that's at the Hammersmith Apollo. So if you could buy some tickets for that, we are going to be having a great big feminist celebration. So I want you all to come out and you will leave feeling inspired. Oh my God. I just know that young Floss right now, even Floss right now, to be honest, it was only a few years ago that I started listening to The Guilty Feminist. is absolutely freaking out. Like if I could tell Floss at 17 years old that she would be interviewing Deborah Francis White, she was like the feminist Beyonce. To me. I don't even know what the equivalent would be, but at the time she was the person who I looked up to as a voice for, for the thoughts that I was trying to muddle out of myself. And I, I think she's absolutely brilliant. She's so fucking smart. She's so funny. And she really has a big heart and she cares a lot. And you can tell in the way that even, even the way that she delivers information in that episode, she really cares and she's really switched on. And also, if you'd like to read more about the diet culture being a cult type thing, you can read Deborah Francis White's book and also Naomi Wolf's book, The Beauty Myth, which goes into it in a lot more depth where it talks about the weighing system, all of that kind of stuff. I want everyone to be able to see the things that I have seen, the way that I have looked at the world after realising all of this shit about diet culture. And I loved her part where she said about how to feel less threatened by women is to learn something that she's afraid of and also something that she loves. I think that's so good and is a massive takeaway for me from this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And a massive thank you to the fucking incredible Black Honey who composed the original theme music for my podcast. You can find them on Instagram at blackhoneyuk and check out their latest album called Written and Directed. 
To keep yourself updated with all the latest episodes as they drop, you can follow exactly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please take the time to rate us wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a review. It really does help people to find us and make sure that the people who need to hear these conversations do. This is a podcast from Something Else. My producer is Millie Charles. Assistant producer is Ella McLeod. Executive producer is Carly Mayle. Production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And we have additional production from Chris Skinner. And I want to give a special thanks to our engineers, Jay Beale, Josh Gibbs and Gully Lawrence Tickle. 